Over the years, it has been said that Seventh-day Adventists are the people of the book. But I wonder aloud whether we really are the people of the book anymore. Are we a people that has the book, but we don't know the book? And more dangerous, are we a people that have the book, but don't know the man who is of the book? The word know that Jesus uses in this passage is the Greek word gnosko, which is to know, to perceive, or to learn. And it is an important distinction. Those who are unwilling will not understand, but those who are willing, anyone who is willing, even those of the simplest mind, the Bible says that they will know. So parables are not an attempt to... an attempt to hide the truth of the Word of God, but rather it is to expose in a very powerful way to those who want to understand the opportunity to come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this parable, Jesus teaches that there is a sower sowing seed. The imagery is imagery that in the 21st century we may not be familiar with. Because typically when we sow seed, it is in the fields, no longer done by hand. But I can assure you, long before Scott's designed a seed sower, God designed our two hands and our arms that we would be effective sower of seeds. And so in this, the imagery is of a a, a farmer that is scattering seeds. And the Bible is clear in Mark 4.14 that the sower sows the word. Luke 8 makes it even more explicit and says the seed is the word of God. And so this parable is a teaching about the receptivity of God's word. And it is here where I want to take a brief pause and make an important point. Without saying much about it, the Bible is indicative of the fact that the Word of God is life-giving. There is life in the Word, just as a seed has life within it. That seed, though, needs the proper soil or the proper atmosphere in which that life comes to life and grows. Unfortunately, in Christianity today and in Adventism, it is not the Word of God that is being taught. It is not being taught from our pulpits, studied in our Sabbath schools, or discussed in our home Bible studies. Rather than being experts on the Word of God, we have become experts on man's opinions. We have become experts on traditions and culture. Yet we're not so inclined to the Word of God. You see, tradition and culture, opinions are not truth. Only the Word of God is is truth. Life transformation can only happen when we are in an atmosphere of truth. In Christian churches worldwide, there are pastors, elders, and leaders 
that do not accept the Bible as the inspired, infallible Word of God because they have robbed the Word of its power. And instead of the Word being master over us, they have become masters over the Word. In Canada, over the course of the last 10 years, the United Church has lost over 1 million members. Why is that? Because many of their pastors have rejected the Word of God. Many of their pastors claim to be agnostics. Some of their pastors even claim atheism. They treat the Word of God. Many people do not realize this. Many of the greatest New Testament and Old Testament scholars are atheists. They study the book simply as a piece of ancient literature. And in so doing, when we convey these ideas, we have robbed individuals of the life-changing power of the gospel message. In our schools, other subjects have outweighed the importance of the Word of God. The sciences, the academy, and freedom of academic exploration have been praised as the paramount experience of university life. My dear friends, the paramount experience of any Adventist elementary, academy, or university institution is to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ and his word and experience his transformational power through the Holy Spirit. And because many of our institutions are not sowing the seed of the word of God, we have produced generations of spiritual weaklings. And this parable emphasizes from its very outset that the Word is pure, unadulterated truth. And as the seed of the Word of God falls to the ground, the parable says there are four types of soil. And it really leaves us with the question, what type of soil do I have in my heart? The wayside soil, the rocky soil, the thorny ground, and then what the Bible simply calls the good ground. In each case, Jesus taught what differentiated the soil. It is the heart of the receiver. And as we study this passage, certainly this passage can be applied to evangelism and sharing the word. But there is something very important that I will share at the outset. It is impossible to share the word effectively if you have not received the word truly and been transformed by it. It is far too easy to apply the teachings of Jesus Christ to others and not apply it to ourselves. This parable teaches that the very essence of the mission of Jesus Christ was far different than what the religious leaders were expecting. The religious leaders and Pharisees were expecting a Messiah to come as a mighty conqueror to sit upon the throne of David and to subdue all the nations to the Jews. However, it is in this parable where Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he had not come to conquer some foreign foe. He had not come to conquer some heathen nation, but rather he came to conquer a far greater enemy, 
And that is the enemy of our prideful hearts. Through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tried to teach the same things. But now through these parables, is attempting to reach the heart of the listeners. Jesus is the seed sower. He is attempting to spread the seed of the Word of God as far and as wide as possible. And the Bible says that some of that seed fell by the wayside. The, way, the word wayside literally is translated elsewhere as the way, the road, or the path. This is not necessarily the path to town, but rather the paths that are created in and that are created naturally in the garden or in the field. For those of you that garden, you know there are those places that you walk in your garden, and you walk and you kneel, and you tend to do that in the same places. And it's not just in the gardening experience. Years ago, there was a university, and before they expended the money to put in sidewalks on the university, it was just grass and buildings. And naturally, paths were created, and that is where then they put the sidewalks. In the garden, there is that ground which we step on repeatedly that as we step on it, it becomes compacted. It is no longer able to receive any seed. It is hard. And that hardened soil provides a difficult environment for seeds to flourish. And what the Bible says in all three of those gospel, in all three of the gospel accounts of this parable, it says that the seed fell to the ground and birds came and devoured the seed. Luke adds that the seed was trampled down. The hardened ground doesn't allow for the seed to penetrate the earth, so it sits on the top, and it does not germinate. And anyone walking on the path then tramples that seed down. It, the seed is not protected. The seed is exposed to the elements and had no soil, no environment in which it could germinate. It is an, it is an environment not ideal for growth. And Jesus expanded on what this meant. He said that these individuals receive it, they hear it, but they do not understand. This is the same word that I just talked about a moment ago, the Greek word tsunami, which means they were unwilling to accept it, to consider it, or to bring it together. They do not understand because they reject the seed. Some have hardened their hearts against Jesus' message. And that hardness of heart prevents the seed of the gospel from germinating and they do not understand the truth. And then the gospel says that the birds devoured it, which Matthew says is the wicked one coming and snatching it away. Then Mark expands on that and he says it is Satan who comes away and takes away the word from the heart. And then Luke says that it is the devil that comes and takes away the word out of their heart. But Luke adds this important phrase when he says, lest they should believe and be saved. The word there saved is the Greek word sozo, which is, yes, translated deliverance from sin, but elsewhere is translated to be made well or to be healed. 
This is why the Bible says in John 3.16, a passage that you are familiar with, but also John 3.17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The Greek word sozo, the same exact word that Luke uses, that the devil snatches away the word that they cannot believe and they are not saved. You see, the mission of Jesus is rather simple. He has one goal in your life, and that is that you would be made whole in him, that you would be made well in him, that you would be healed in him. And that wholeness, wellness, and healing is in all aspects of life. He wants us to experience physical, emotional, mental, social, and spiritual well-being. This is why Jesus scatters the seed. But looming and waiting in the wings is the devil and his satanic forces to snatch the seed. The devil doesn't want you to have an experience of faith. He doesn't want you to have the experience of salvation. And while the mission of Jesus is to save, Jesus is quite clear about the mission of the devil. John 8:44 says that he was a murderer from the beginning. The word murderer is the Greek word anthropokatino, which is a conjunction of two words, anthropos, which of course means humanity, and kataino, which means to slay or murder. Why am I pointing this out? Because the devil has one goal. He is a man. He is a human slayer. That's what he wants to do. He wants to take you out. And I have news for you, friends. He doesn't care how he takes you out. He just wants to take you out. This is why the book of Revelation says he knows his time is short, and that's why he's going out with wrath. I recall when I was a younger man, I have three younger brothers. I'm the oldest of four boys, and we were all camping in a place that some of you may know, but in the upper peninsula of Michigan, Copper Harbor to be exact, the very tip of the Keweenaw Peninsula, and we were camping on Lake Fanny Ho. And there was a pier in Lake Fanny Ho, and I, and I need to tell you, I didn't always know Jesus, and so I was particularly amused by taking my brother and faking like I was pushing him in the water. For whatever reason, that brought great joy to my heart, but it didn't do so with my brother. He was quite upset. And, uh, and I did that several times, and I laughed, and I thought it was funny, and then I forgot about it. And I was then at the end of the pier, and I was looking out over Lake Fanny Ho as a young man, and I was thinking about the fishing that we were going to be doing later in the day, and then I heard something, and at first I, w I, I didn't know what it was, uh, but then it became uh, apparent that whatever it was was moving quickly. And I turned, and there coming down the pier at full speed was my brother running. And he did not fake pushing me in. He pushed me. And I had one thing on my mind as I was falling in, just one thing. I was with all of my might and all of my strength and all of my sight trying to do one thing. Not to save myself, not to prevent myself from falling in, but to grab him and take him in with me. <laughs> Unfortunately, I did not do that. Now looking back on it, fortunately. The devil knows his time is short. 
The devil knows what his end is. Matthew 25 says that the lake of fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. God has a way that he will deal with sin and he never intended for any human being to be a part of the lake of fire. We know from the end of the book of from the end of book of uh, from the end of the book of Revelation that there will be those who make a decision and that is where they will be. But the lake of fire was intended to deal with the sin, to deal with the devil and to deal with it, to deal with his angels. He knows that his time is short. And like I was trying to grab onto my brother and take him in the water with me, that's what the devil's doing. He's trying to grab and take you in with him. He wants to steal away the life that you have in Jesus Christ. Listen to these words from the book Christ Object Lessons on page 44. Satan is ready to catch away the seeds of divine truth from the soul. He fears that the word of God may awaken the careless and take effect upon the hardened heart. Satan and his angels are in the assemblies where the gospel is preached. While angels of heaven endeavor to impress hearts with the word of God, the enemy is on the alert to make the word of no effect. With an earnestness equaled only by his malice, he tries to thwart the work of the Spirit of God. While Christ is drawing the soul by his love, Satan tries to turn away the attention of the one who is moved to seek the Savior. He engages the mind with worldly schemes. He excites criticisms or insinuates doubt and unbelief. The speaker's choice of language or his manner, may not please the hearers, and they dwell upon these defects. Thus the truth they need, and which God has graciously sent them, makes no lasting impression. Satan has many helpers. Many who profess to be Christians are aiding the tempter to catch away the seeds of truth from the hearts. Many who listen to the preaching of the word of God make it the subject of criticism at home. They sit in judgment on the sermon as they would on the words of a lecturer or a political speaker. The message that should be regarded as the word of the Lord to them is dwelt upon with trifling or sarcastic comment. The minister's character, motives, and actions and the conduct of fellow members of the church are freely discussed. Severe judgment is pronounced, gossip or slander repeated, and this in the hearing of the unconverted. Often these things are spoken by parents in the hearing of their own children. Thus are destroyed respect for God's messengers and reverence for the message. And many are taught to regard lightly God's word itself. Thus in the homes of professed Christians, many youth are educated to be infidels. And the parents question why their children are so little interested in the gospel and so ready to doubt the truth of the Bible. They wonder that it is so difficult to reach them with moral and religious influences. They do not see that their own example has hardened the hearts of their children. The good seed finds no place to take root and Satan catches it away. Our hearts need to be softened. Jeremiah 4.3 says that 
we need to break up our fallow ground of our heart. Micah 10, 12 says the same. And then in Micah 10, 13, it says why the ground is fallow. It says that you have trusted in your own way. There are many scriptures that warn against trusting in your own way. Psalm 20 and verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 33, 17 says, A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. And Proverbs 21, 31 says, The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. And some of you might be wondering why I'm quoting verses about horses. Because in the 21st century, while we don't place our trust in horses, don't miss the point. We place our trust in a variety of things and often not in Jesus Christ. We place our trust in ourselves. We place our trust in another person. We place our trust in a book. We place our trust in a TV program. We place our trust in some psychologist or a social worker. We may even place our trust in our spouse. We might place trust in our music. I don't know what it is for you, but all of this is to say that Proverbs 3 is clear. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. You see, the wayside ground is the heart of an unwilling person who is not prepared to surrender. Because in the 21st century, no one wants to surrender. No one wants to submit. The wayside heart is a heart that is unwilling to surrender. But surrender is not enough. Because then Jesus says there is the rocky soil. And the word used to describe rocky soil is not so much like gravel, but rather the ledge of a rock or rockiness covered by a little bit of soil. There's enough soil to yield quick results. The seed germinates. It springs up. But because it's rocky underneath, the roots cannot penetrate. The stony ground heart is one that receives the word, hears the word, and Mark says... And Matthew says that they receive it with joy. Mark says with gladness. It's the same Greek word. They they delight in the word, but it is not transformational, but more like a temporary emotional fix. There's no root. There's no consistency. The passage says that the heart may even endure for a while, but when temptation comes, when a trial comes, when tribulation comes, they stumble and fall away. There is no depth of experience. This might be a a person that's in church every single week. And they come every single week and they get that jolt to sustain them, but there is no root that nourishes them daily. 
It is an emotionally driven response where there is no life change. There is no principle-driven life, but rather a life of inclination, whim, and desire. It is a superficial experience, and in reality, it is a facade. It's not true Christianity. Profession with no commitment or accountability. The outward appearance of good soil, but at the core, hardened, selfish, unwilling or unable to count the cost of following Jesus Christ. Christ Object Lessons, page 47, says what is needed. The roots of the plant strike down deep into the soil and hidden from the sight nourish the life of the plant. So with the Christian, it is by the invisible union of the soul with Christ through faith that the spiritual life is nourished, but the stony ground hearers depend upon self instead of Christ. They trust in their good works and good impulses and are strong in their own righteousness. They are not strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Such a one hath not root in himself, for he is not connected with Christ. My dear friends, God calls us to not have hearts of stony ground. And a stony ground here may be sincere, but rather, instead of receiving the gospel as deliverance from sin and transformation in the life, it is received as an escape from suffering or some other issue. Momentary rejoicing, but no root of spiritual and gospel transformation. When difficult times come, they fade away and eventually reject the true gospel of Jesus Christ. What is needed? Daily life in the word. Studying. And most importantly, living out the word. That is what gives depth. That is what gives root. And that is what gives power. It gives us the ability to have what Ellen White calls experimental religion. It gives us the faith to experiment in our faith. But because we have no confidence in God, we are not able to venture out. Because we don't have a true relationship of trust and faith in Jesus Christ. We have these rocky hearts that have initial sprouts, but there is no root. And when the challenges of life come, we give up our faith and we do not follow through. Too often I hear people talk about standing at the end of time. 
My dear friends, if we are unwilling to stand now in the small matters of life, there will be no standing at the end of time. The reason that the three Hebrew worthies were able to stand at the fiery furnace and tell Nebuchadnezzar in modern vernacular, it doesn't matter what you do to us. Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't deliver us, we still won't serve your God. The reason they were able to stand at the fiery furnace is because they were able to stand in the small thing of food in Daniel chapter 1, in the small thing of faithfulness to their God despite their circumstances. If we don't have root now, we will not be able to draw the nourishment of the soil and draw that nourishment from Jesus Christ when, as they say, the going gets tough. But then Jesus said there are some that falls on thorny ground. Plants with piercing points. Plants that stick into your flesh. In the scriptures, the word thorn is used in a sense for useful and unuseful plants. It is also used to describe those plants that are harmful to the harvest or briars. Have you ever gotten briars when you've been walking through a field? Have you ever been poked with a thorn? I don't know about you. There are some that accuse me of having some attention deficit disorder. When something is thorny or sticking in me, I'm usually not able to pay attention to much else. I want to get those briars off. What a fitting example that Jesus gives here. Once again, the soil is receptive. The assumption of the passage is that the seeds germinate, the plants begin to grow, but the thorns and the briars spring up and choke out the more useful plants. For those of you that garden, have you ever noticed how hard it is to grow a good tomato plant and how easy it is to grow good weeds? You see, the weeds can grow in the foulest of soils. And so these thorns, these weeds begin to crowd out the good plants. They choke out the good plants. Jesus says that these hearers receive the word. But according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the following things choke out the power of the word. The cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, desires for other things. And then Luke just uses these broad categories of cares, riches, and the pleasures of life. Let me begin by saying this. There are things in this world that we can enjoy and not everything is bad. The principle being taught here is are even those good things crowding out the best thing? There is an experience amongst these hearers that leads to growth. And while that experience is deep enough for germination, the thorns, the cares of life, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things, they all poke and prod and distract the individual from any true, real conviction. 
There is constant competition with the Word of God in their lives. And because of that, the Bible says that the thorns take control and that, the, that those plants bear no fruit. And we already know that the fruit of the Christian life is outlined in Galatians 5 in the fruits of the Spirit. And those thorny ground hearers are individuals that do not have love, no joy, no peace, no long-suffering, no kindness, no goodness, no faithfulness, no gentleness, and no self-control. Because the thorns of life had crowded it out. And let me be very, very clear. I am not being critical of the thorny ground hearer because it is very easy to be distracted by many things. I've gone through experiences in my own life where so many things are happening, it crowds out that, that time that I spend in the Word. It's a masterful plan of the devil to distract us from the word, which is the only thing that has the answer to the problems we're going through. In Christ Object Lessons, page 50, it says this, many of Christ's followers forget the lesson he has bidden us to learn from the flowers of the field. They do not trust to his constant care. Christ cannot carry their burden because they do not cast it upon him. Therefore, the cares of life, which should drive them to the Savior for help and comfort, separate them from him. Many become so absorbed in the business that they have no time for prayer, no time for the study of the Bible, no time to seek and serve God. At times, the longings of the soul go out for holiness in heaven, but there is no time to turn aside from the din of the world to listen to the majestic and authoritative utterances of the Spirit of God. The things of eternity are made subordinate. The things of the world are supreme. It is impossible for the seed of the word to bring forth fruit, for the life of the soul is given to nourish the thorns of worldliness. And our world is filled with distractions. I'm not anti-technology. Those of you who are old enough to remember, I remember from when I was a young man and worked with my dad that computers used to not be in phones. Computers used to take up entire warehouses. And it is an amazing thing that this little gadget has more power than those warehouse computers had. And it's an amazing thing because on this phone, I have the Bible in a variety of languages, in a variety of translations, and the phone will actually speak to me and read the Word of God to me. But also on this phone, I have email where the world tries to get a hold of me. I also, believe it or not, this used to function as a phone, but now it functions as many other things. People can actually call me. And then I have notifications that let me know when something's happening, the, the weather has changed, or, or something has happened that is of some importance to somebody somewhere, and they're trying to convince me that it needs to be important to me. And the point I'm making is not that your phone is evil, 
It can be used for evil, but the point I'm making is that the devil has done a masterful job of making us so busy that we have no time for Jesus. It's kind of like when I visit with churches and we talk about evangelism. I'll never forget, as I was visiting with a church board in the Okanagan Valley of British Columbia, which if you've never been there, I, I think in my mind that a piece of Eden landed there because they grow cherries larger than you've ever seen before. And so they asked me, Pastor, when do you want to do an evangelistic series? And I said, oh, why don't we do it in July? You know, sometime around when the cherries uh, ripen. And all of them looked at me in a very stunned way and I said, I'm just kidding. But then they began to tell me, they said, now, Pastor, we need you to understand. In the fall, it's difficult to do evangelism because kids are going back to school and people are busy getting their kids back in school and so on and so forth. And then in the winter, it's really tough because it snows here, and when it snows here, people don't really want to go out, and they want to stay in. And then in the spring, Pastor, that's not a good time either because that's when people start going outside, and they start planting and getting their gardens ready and everything else. And then the summertime is a bad time, Pastor, because everybody's on vacation. And to that, I just sat, and I let it sink in what they all had said. And finally, there was a little chuckle here and a little chuckle there that finally we came to the realization that everybody was saying there's never a good time. And by the way, just not that this sermon has anything to do with an evangelistic series, but I've been a part of an evangelistic meeting in the summer, part of one in the fall, part of one in the winter, part of one in the spring. And in all areas, there was a harvest to be reaped. And in this example of the Word of God, we must take time. And we must set aside time, which is why, by the way, it is no wonder that at creation, God designed the Sabbath day because he understood what human tendency would be to do. And that is to be busy all the time. But outside of the Sabbath, we need those times, those, shall I call them, sanctuaries in time where we spend time with the Word of God. There was a young man in youth Sabbath school today, and I will not draw attention to him because I don't want to embarrass him. But he talked about this week as he was going back and forth to Cassopolis that he was listening to the word on the way to his job and on the way back from his job, he was praying an hour and a half in the car, no distraction, just praying and asking God, do we have those times? What are the things that are crowding out our experience with the Lord Jesus Christ? Because the reality is, is whatever those things are that are crowding out your experience with Jesus, none of them will satisfy you as Jesus does. And by the way, those things could be very good things, which is why Jesus said to Martha in Luke 11, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. And what did the Bible say she was doing? She was serving Jesus. Good thing, right? Let's try that one more time. Is serving Jesus a good thing? But then Jesus says, you are worried and troubled about many things. And then he said something fascinating. He says, but one thing is needed. One thing is needed. And Mary has chosen the good part which will not be taken away from her. And what was Mary doing? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, receiving the word. 
one thing is needed. Time. Time to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn. And that leads us to the lesson of the good soil. The word good is translated a variety of ways in the Bible. It's translated as beautiful, honorable, fine, useful, and vigorous. The seed that falls on this ground grows and yields a crop 30, 60, and 100 fold. And like all other soils, Matthew says they receive it. They hear it. But then interestingly enough, each one of the gospel writers uses a different word to describe what happens next. In Matthew 13, 23, it says that they understand it. But in Mark 4, 20, it says they accept it. And then Dr. Luke in Luke 8, 15 says they keep it. So how is it then that we embrace the word of God? Number one, we understand it. And this word used by Matthew in Matthew 13, 23 is the same word understand that I have talked about earlier. And it represents a willingness to accept and to hear. A willingness to believe. A willingness to accept. My dear friend, I don't know where you're at in your life. But have you hardened your heart to receiving the word? I don't know why you've hardened your heart. Maybe the church has disappointed you. Maybe a pastor has disappointed you. Maybe a teacher has disappointed you. Maybe a family member, a parent has disappointed you. Maybe you perceive that God has disappointed you. I don't know where you're at in your life, but my appeal to you is do not close yourself off to the word of God. Because the Bible says it is living and it is active. It is powerful. Surrender your heart today. Plow that ground that it would be softened and receptive. Like the man who came to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I'm willing Help my unwillingness. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our life that we can be ready to receive. But then Mark says that we accept it. it this literally means to welcome or to adopt. Do we accept the teachings of the Bible? What do I mean? Sometimes when we read the word or hear a teaching of scripture, especially when that teaching challenges our lifestyle, it challenges our culture or challenges our thinking, we will say, that's, that's not for me. We don't change. We simply ignore and we become wayside, rocky, thorny-hearted people. The question here is, even when a teaching is tough, do we receive it and accept it? You know, recently, I had the opportunity to travel to Nigeria. And when I went to Nigeria, I had the opportunity to meet one of the Akwere people, one of their kings. 
And I'll save that story for another time because it was a profound experience. But as I was sitting amongst the king and his council, they brought out a platter to me. And don't worry, there weren't crazy things on it. Some of you are waiting for something terrible to happen. On the platter was some fruit. And then there was something in Nigeria they called the cola nut. And it is a ceremony in which when the king did that, had he not done that, everyone would have known. But when he did that, it was representative of the fact that the king was accepting me. And as I received that plate, I just placed my hands on it. That represented my accepting of his acceptance. And so we are accepting of one another. And the cola nut and that meaning has become so profound that now when you visit, especially as pastors, you visit a home, they give you a gift, whether they give you a book, whether they give you an article of clothing, whatever they give you, they call that cola. It is a ceremony of acceptance. And, and God, by giving us his word, is saying, I accept you to be my people. But if we don't accept it, we are rejecting the invitation that he's given to us. And we're saying, you know what? I'll take a pass. I'll go on at this alone. Let us be clear. Whether you accept the word of God or not, the word of God is powerful, the word of God is life-changing, and the word of God is transformational. But it will be none of these things to you unless you accept it readily into your life. And this too involves submission and surrender. And then lastly, Dr. Luke says that we keep it. This word is translated as hold on to, hold fast, occupy, or to possess. It literally means to internalize the word. This is where the the word comes to life in you. You see, religion is not just a series of outward forms, but it is an internal experience. This is why the Apostle Paul, utilizing that same word, says in Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. That word hold fast is the same word that Luke uses, keep. This is the word of God. It is not merely, this is the word of God. It's not merely black ink or red ink printed on a white page. This is the life-giving power of God. It is inspired, literally God-breathed. You want to know what God's message is for you? Open this book and read it. But it must be more than just words on a page. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Too often I hear people say, we have the truth. That is not the most fundamental question, whether you have the truth or not. The fundamental question is, does the truth have you? And in the truth having you, have you possessed the truth in such a way that it is imputed to you? The Bible talks about imputed righteousness, imparted righteousness. Have you experienced the life-giving power as Jesus imputes into you his power? The good heart hearer is one who has an honest heart, who yields his conviction to the Holy Spirit, who confesses his guilt, feels his need, and cries out to God and receives the love of God. And when we do this, my friends, the Bible says that we bear fruit. Luke adds the word, and I appreciate Luke's adding the word, we bear fruit with patience. (laughs) For those of you that have ever gardened before, sometimes we need to be very patient. But patience pays off. And in the gardening of our spiritual heart, there is patience. But as we receive the word, the word will change us. And as the word changes us, we begin to to bear the fruit of the Spirit, which says 30, 60, or 100-fold. What's the point? What is it to be fruitful? It's to produce. And what is it that you produce? If I plant a grain of wheat in the ground, what am I hoping that it will produce? If I'm hoping for anything other than wheat, then I have a false hope. I'm hoping that it produces wheat. If I plant corn in the ground, I am hoping for corn. When I plant an apple seed in the ground, I'm hoping for apples. By the way, for any apple grower that will correct me that you actually cultivate apples by, by, uh, oh, I just uh, lost the word. Um, Grafting, thank you very much. I know that's how you cultivate apples because if you plant an apple seed, you're only gonna wait about 40 years to get your apple. By the way, that's cultivating with patience. Radishes, you don't need a whole lot of patience. 30 days later, you have a radish. Asparagus, however, you're going to wait three years. Apple seed, you're going to wait 40 years. But is it worth the wait? And as we bear fruit... As we bear fruit, don't miss the point, as we are headed to close. As we bear fruit, then we are able to sow the seeds of the fruit that God has produced. In order to be an effective seed sower, 
We need to be fruitful by receiving the seed and being transformed. And I share this passage with you today to challenge each of us to receive the word. In two days, we will begin a new year. And I want to challenge you to be in the word. Some will say, well, what do I do and where do I start? If you've not been spending any time in the word, my counsel is very simple. I would start in the gospels, in particular in the gospel of Mark. And don't worry reading about, you know, people talk about reading chapters and chapters a day. and Just, just read one section. And here's my, if you're not reading the word right now, you have no quiet time with God. All I'm asking you for, I'm not asking you for some huge commitment. Sometimes we will hear people talk about Martin Luther praying for three hours. And when you're not praying for five minutes, that's impossible. So here's what I'm going to ask you is set aside 10 minutes. 10 uninterrupted minutes. Put the phone away. Put the computer away. Get out a real book. And if the only way you can access the Bible is your phone, then just use your phone. But turn off all the other settings and read and ponder for 10 uninterrupted minutes. When I read the Bible, I like to ask three questions. So you read a passage, and then you ask these three questions. What does the Bible say? What is it saying to me? And what invitation to change is Jesus making for me today? Now, if you want to take it the next step, I like to write, and I have a little journal that I use in the morning. I like, for our young people here, once upon a time, there was something created called paper. And this is a pen. This is actually a real pen. This is a fountain pen that requires you to ink it up with real ink. And I write. And people say, what do you write? I write whatever God has placed on my heart. And as you take those 10 uninterrupted minutes, the 10 minutes will turn into 15. It will turn into 20. And then people will say, how much time should I spend? And my answer to that is enough. I can't answer that question. Sometimes you may be facing something which is seemingly insurmountable in your life. And you may need more time that day. But spend enough. For those of you that are already spending quiet time with God, I want to challenge you to, to read the Bible, to read the Bible more effectively this year. If you want to follow a one-year plan for reading the Bible, three chapters a day, you can read the Bible in its entirety in one year. HMS Richards used to at the beginning of every year, 
in a desire to familiarize himself with the whole story of Scripture, would read the Bible through in 30 days. It's not easy. It's simple. 40 chapters a day. Barry Black, when interviewed about his preaching, talks about preaching from the overflow. Barry Black goes through the entire Bible four to five times every year. How does he do that, people will say? Because he drives in Washington, D.C. traffic. And he listens to the Bible. And I'm quoting him almost verbatim. He listens to the news for about 10 minutes and he says the news simply repeats itself every 10 minutes. So once I've listened for 10 minutes, I've gotten it all. And then he listens. And by the way, just to, because traffic in Washington, D.C. is a little bit different than traffic in Battle Creek, Michigan. Traffic in the Beltway takes Barry Black about an hour and a half to get to the Senate every day. Without traffic, I lived about an hour from the General Conference. And one time it took me four and a half hours to get there. You can listen to a lot of the word in four and a half hours. And by the way, for my auditory learners, listening to the word is just as significant as reading the word. Two years ago, I dedicated that year to listening through the word of God. It was life transformational. I'll be sharing some of that transformation with you with a series that I'll begin preaching toward the end of this month where I'll be preaching through the book of Ezekiel. And before you say, are you serious? It was through listening to the word that the book of Ezekiel, for the first time in my life, made sense. I've taken more time than I wanted this morning, but I want to appeal to you that the Battle Creek Church, the Battle Creek Tabernacle, a place that has its history where the name Seventh-day Adventist was chosen, where the first world missionaries were sent from, That this, in, that this historic place would once again become historic in nature because it would become known as a people who have good soil hearts and are a people of the word who know the Lord Jesus Christ and who bear much fruit and so many seeds of the gospel message. That is my challenge to you today.